Look who it is. You listening to me, Allison Kilkenny, on a special bonus episode of Light Treason News. Uh-oh, that's right. It's not a weekend episode. It's a middle of the fucking week episode. You didn't expect it, and suddenly I'm in your ears. And you're like, why, Allison? Why? Great question. Um, as regular listeners of the show know, I am frequently joined by my gorgeous co-host, Meredith Clark, who is a huge connoisseur of horror films, and she very enthusiastically recommended a horror film to me called Blood Quantum. I watched it. I loved it. On an impulse, I was like, I got to find the director, Jeff Barnaby, on the social medias, and I started following him, and lo and behold... He gave me an old uh, follow back. And so I slipped into the DMs and I said, Jeff, you got to do the show. And he very graciously agreed. So we have a great interview with Jeff Barnaby, the brilliant director of Blood Quantum, uh, which you guys should all go watch. It made a big old splash at the Toronto International Film Festival. Yada, yada, yada. You don't care about credentials. You just want to go watch a dang good movie. Check out Blood Quantum. It is on Shutter right now. Uh, if you don't have a Shutter account, you could always sign up for one. Or, guys, share your Shutter deets with the people. Let's get socialist up in here. I don't know why I'm talking this much in the introduction. I don't need to. Let me shut up. Uh, guys, please go follow Jeff Barnaby on Twitter at TripGore. We love the name. And I, yeah, I hope you enjoy this very special bonus episode of Light Trees and News. If you like the content, if you like the fact that you don't have to pay for it, hey, or listen to commercials, hey, go to lighttreason.news and smash that donate button to keep us going. Thank you so much to Jeff again, and please enjoy the interview. First of all, congratulations on Blood Quantum. It's awesome. I literally just watched it the other day based on a recommendation by Meredith, uh, who's a huge horror fan and was like, you absolutely have to watch this. So for people who haven't seen it, um, the film depicts the effects of, I guess we could call a zombie uprising on a First Nations reserve where residents are immune to contracting the plague that only affects, and I love this, white people. Um, I love the twist on the sort of uh, traditional zombie narrative. Um, so I wanted to ask you, I was just really impressed watching it because it looks extremely expensive. Like I was texting Meredith watching it, like what was the budget on this movie? And I hear that you actually didn't have a huge budget. So I just wanted to ask you about like, what was the process of getting it made? When did this whole process start for you? It actually started way back in uh, 2013, maybe even before that, where I came up with the initial concept and it was a eureka moment. It was like, I want to do a zombie movie. Producers are like, fuck that. Zombie movies are played out. The whole genre is played out. Forget it. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what if we take a new approach to it? And as I said that, I didn't know what I was talking about because I, you know, I have no idea what that meant. And then right after saying it, it was like, what if we make the natives immune to the zombie plague? It happened just like that. And I don't know if you ever had these moments where you're like, you're hearing the ideas, you're coming up with it, 
<laughs> That's exactly what it was like. So we came up with that. And this was after I had done a short called The Colony and people were hyping me back then. And I started putting it out there. And what I got in response was there's no way people are going to give you the amount of money you're going to need to execute this film. Because on the page, it was even crazier than what you saw on screen. So I ended up doing another film, my first feature called Rhymes for Young Ghouls, which was, uh, I think, 2000 and... Jesus, I don't remember when I did my own films, 2014, maybe. So that was a practice swing for Blood Quantum. It was all meant to be a calling card to make this film. So it was really 13 years in the making, gone to a bazillion rewrites. And even when we finally thought we had the money, we didn't. Because I wrote the entire screenplay to take place on my reserve. But we didn't have the money to get down there. And the unions here charge you an extra fee when you're shooting outside of uh, what they call the zone. So for me to go down to my community, which is about seven and a half hours outside of Montreal, it would have cost us, you know, more money and we couldn't do it. So we actually had to shut down for like four or five months to raise that money. Mm-hmm. And uh, Todd Brown from XYZ came in and helped out. So we were able to finish the, uh, we, we kind of shot it in sequence too. So literally the final scenes you see are what we shot last. And everybody uh, after this 13 year process, man, we're, we're just like kind of shocked at a good time. <laughs> and I think anybody knows anything about films or has worked on a film before you get an idea of how just incomprehensible the amount of work is. Oh and my God, yeah. I, like a hundred and some people working on these these things, so it was, it was it was quite a long time in the making, and it it you know serendipitously landed at the perfect time. So it, it feels very uh, uh, like written in the stars kind of thing. So I'm, right. I'm, I'm so happy. for you, so for you the it was always horror first. Like you absolutely wanted to make a, a horror film, and that was sort of what was driving you no not at all uh genre (laughs) i think think facilitates the concepts that are in my head better right and i don't like making pulpit dumping films i'm not into pity porn which is a lot of what you get when you're dealing with with the minority films like look at the poor ethnic person and he's so (laughs) downtrodden and like i'm not into that at all I realize and I acknowledge that those things exist, but the characters, the native characters in my films are often the, 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 the epicenters of the strength, almost the oppressors in a way. Like what I like to do is irony. That's, that's, that's my thing. And that's, that's what blood quantum was. It was completely, everything was completely ironic for me. The zombie element was kind of what producers were saying that it's an oversaturated market and it's mm-hmm. like it's oversaturated because people don't want to fucking stop watching zombie films they're like <laughs> they're always been be an audience for zombie films it's like pornography so yeah. i was like well we need to put this in a vehicle we need to put it, this idea in a vehicle that you know will have an audience regardless of the political content so that was the idea behind horror and aesthetically, I find it's just more interesting. Like you can like take Blood Quantum, for instance, you could light a whole scene using nothing but fire. 
and mm. it makes sense. Whereas if you're in a drama, you do shit <laughs> like candlelight or whatever, you gotta justify it. Whereas here, it, it just it adds to, you, to the aesthetic. And I think the idea that you're talking about Native people and the apocalypse, those two things are, for me anyway, synonymous. Because for all intents and purposes, Native people have already went through their apocalypse. This is new to white people, but mm. to us, We've been going through it for centuries. So the idea that Native people would be adept and, and very well, 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 well equipped to deal with an apocalypse was another idea. And these are, these are ideas that you typically find in genre, science fiction, horror. So that's, that's where you know, a lot of that comes from. I just like the aesthetic. It's not necessarily, you know, I want to see heads roll, although that's kind of fun too. <laughs> I just think that it's just more interesting. Stories are more interesting. And you're starting to see uh, a kind of uh, horror renaissance. Like mm-hmm. you look at uh, you look at Get Out, you look at, uh, you know, the stuff that, like I, I personally think uh, Ari Aster stuff is, is mm-hmm. like some of the best cinema that you could see today. Like yeah. Hereditary was yeah. a, Straight up masterpiece. There's there's no two ways about it. It's just straight up masterpiece. Should have won Oscars. Mm. The lead actress should have won an Oscar. So I think you're 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 dealing with a little bit of prejudice when it comes to the industry's interpretation of horror. So I I I really don't know what that is because it, it's 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 popular and it's always been a great vehicle for really high concept stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you look at you know. If you look at the history of cinema, you know, there's always been a horror film there to kind of push that envelope. Like uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari comes to mind. It influenced like the 30s and the 40s with, with noir cinema. I mean, and, and it, it found its roots in horror. The same thing with uh, Fritz Lang's M. You, you get horror elements there. And I feel like it's, it's kind of overlooked as high concept art because well for whatever reason you'd have to ask one of the one of the eggheads who think it's 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 not worthy <laughs> of praise but to me it's always been you know a vehicle for high concept high concept ideas i really just think it's that the academy is filled with older people and i i'm hoping that'll change a little bit as they recruit younger individuals who recognize horror can can be really elevated in the ways you're talking about but i guess we'll have to to wait and see about that um meredith i know you have a a question off of what we were talking about yeah i mean i was uh you know based on what you were you said that uh you know it the setting of the story made sense because native peoples have already lived through an apocalypse um that it was what is it like to basically have to see that exact message playing out in real life i mean you made a zombie movie that is now you know it's a different pandemic but uh you know we here in the united states are going through our own slow apocalypse is is it weird to feel like you predicted <laughs> a little bit of uh of the chaos no not at all i mean if <laughs> Ear to the ground. If you're like, uh, like I have a, a pretty, pretty high interest in science, and if you look at the biologists, they've been saying that there's another, you know, there's another plague coming 
imminently. So nobody should surprise nobody. I don't think it surprised <laughs> anybody in the scientific community. And you talk about, I mean, Blood Quantum at its heart is an environmental catastrophe film. And this virus right now essentially has come about because you had people fucking around where they shouldn't have been. And you talk about climate change, melting permafrost, all the fucking viruses waiting to, you know, jump out from there. It's like, hey, did you know during dinosaur times there was a virus that, you know, turned people into the thing from the thing? You know, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) So you have all that there. It it just, you know, it just made sense. It's been predicted for quite some time now. So for this to be happening, really, it should be a surprise to no one who was, you know, keeping track. I mean, because like really people have been predicting this forever. And if you look at plagues, they're almost cyclical. Like every hundred years, there's like some giant plague that comes around. It gives you like a like reason to pause and, and pick up a Bible almost. Because <laughs> it's like everything, <laughs> everything seems like a portent. You know what I mean? Everything mm-hmm. seems like uh, like like we have comets buzzing the earth and we're having eclipses and these fucking weird, crazy weather events. It all feels very surreal and, and like something out of a, a shitty movie. And uh, oh God, do I feel can't, that? <laughs> can't, even, can't even make up. Like you can get you could resurrect Shakespeare and Stanley Cooper to come up with a storyline and they wouldn't be able to even dream of Trump. Like the shit that comes out of that man's <laughs> mouth is fucking amazing. Like, it's like, how do you come up with this? <laughs> yeah. You can't really, uh, you can, you could predict the virus, but you can't predict the reaction. And it's kind of strange to see the reaction because nobody's taking it seriously. And there's like this, there's been this anti-science line and, and thread throughout American and, and really Western culture. And you're starting to see it fucking bite everybody in the ass now because nobody's taking it seriously. And everybody's saying, like, you know, you can take it seriously or, like, a bunch of people are going to die. And it's happening. And people still aren't taking it seriously. You can predict the virus, but like I said, you really can't predict people's reaction to it. And you're looking at, like, a mountain of dead people and people standing in front of it saying, yeah, I still don't buy it. Right. So, I mean, like, how, how's, how, do, how do you register that in your brain? Like you can't even, you can't even begin to wrap your head around something like that. Yeah. I mean, that in itself is such a horrifying notion of people just not acknowledging what is true when it is objectively true. <laughs> like it, we're living in a very existential, uh, crisis moment right now. Um, but to well, back up, it's, uh, let me, let me just get this thought out of my head. You know what yeah. it is. I yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're you're seeing little enclaves in social media, which are essentially echo chambers, which mm. you can really say anything into. Like, I think the world is flat. So there's going to be a bunch of fucking flat earthers out there saying the same thing to the point where you believe it. Right. And that, that is a phenomenon. I don't give a shit like how much of an advocate you are for social media and how much you look at it as a, a cause for change. But the idea that that exists, those echo chambers exist on social media, fueling the stupidity should definitely be something people are taking seriously along with, you know, the virus. But nobody seems to be doing that either. Everybody thinks, you know, it's like a, I don't even know how to regard it. But it, to me, 
it's like the uh, Werner Herzog film, the uh, what the hell was it called? Into the Abyss. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Something like yeah. that. I forgot exactly what it was called, but he examines the effect of the internet and social media on um, certain families and individuals, and you see the negative impact of it. And I think that's kind of what we're looking at here. Because if you get little fiefdoms of 10, 20,000, sometimes even 200, half a million users on one account where this account is, you know, spreading a bunch of bullshit, truth becomes subjective. And, and you know, it, it can be up to interpretation. Alternative facts. It sounds <laughs> yeah. ridiculous. But if you believe it, is it though? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And like not to go on too much of a tangent about it, but like it is so frightening when you watch Fox News and see what they're talking about, because it, it feels like we are beginning to speak different languages in terms of like what they're talking about and what they're obsessed about. I'm like, you guys are still talking about this shit like like Benghazi or whatever it is, whatever like conspiracy theory they're harping on it in, in that moment. It's truly like we are beginning to speak different languages. Yeah, it's all, it's all, uh, the weird thing is too, you look at the uh, Spanish flu and you look at the aftermath of it and there's like a, there's a uptick in like religious fanaticism and occultation and stuff like that. So it seems like human beings are almost programmed to buy into bullshit in order <laughs> to compensate for the fear. Right. It's like, I need to believe you know, it's kind of like I'm so scared of dying. I need to believe there's a fucking white man with a beard sitting <laughs> on a cloud somewhere waiting for me with a mojito. You know what I mean? <laughs> so part of that, it's almost seems like it's in our genealogy to kind of grasp on to what used to be spirituality. Now it's kind of turned into uh, horseshit. I mean, for lack of a better word. Yeah, like our daddy figure in the sky, for sure. Um so to back up a little bit, for people who don't know who are listening to this interview right now, can you just explain what the term blood quantum means? It's essentially a racial caste system measuring the amount of a certain ethnicity. A lot of, uh, a lot of different cultures have it, and every tribe approaches it differently. But essentially it measures the amount of blood you have of a certain tribe in order to decide whether or not you can be a part of that tribe. Like take my son, for instance, my son, my wife is now and I'm Micmac. So my son is like a uh, 50% or a quarter, whatever it is. And the cutoff rate for Navajo registration is 25%. So he was able to register. Mm-hmm. But if I had like, uh, you know, or if my wife had like a, Asian blood or something, who knows? He wouldn't be able to register as an aid person. And this was an attempt to basically breed Native people out of society. And it was a part of a, a, a bigger system of erasure. Like just, you know, let's let's get the whole genocide thing behind this and forget about it and move on, have a happy meal. And that's kind of where blood quantum sits in the cultural zeitgeist and now it's strange because you can sit there and say oh well blood quantum is negative but at the same time if you put your ear to the ground to a lot of these native communities like Kanawagi here in Montreal would be a good example if you marry outside of 
Mohawk culture, they won't let you live on their reserve. So you can sit there and say it's racist, or you can sit there and say this is one of the things that help us maintain our culture. And regardless of whether you fall where you fall in that opinion, it's kind of like both things are true. And it's 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 you know what, man, it's part of the bigger picture of just being native because in this day and age you have to eat a little shit no matter what you do if you're native. You have to kind of consummate the present with your history and you need to do that in a way that you're not bittered and damaged in order to move forward. And it's Jesus, it's not easy, man. If you see it, it's not easy for anybody. Because if anything, the climate, the racial climate we're having right now, if there's one thing that seems to be evident is that nobody seems nobody seems to be able to move on. White people can't move on from white supremacy and neither can the people that suffer from it. And it's the shitty thing about it, man. You just have to accept that history in order to move on. And blood quantum is a part of that. Mm. Um, so blood it- quantum concept not the film (laughs) (laughs) right right uh so the film's been getting great reviews what's the what's the type of personal uh feedback you've been getting what's what's that been like uh well (laughs) rest people love like people from my res love and that's kind of who i made it for it's like an audience of two thousand people so that's been pretty positive, but there's kind of like a, they, they refer to it as lateral violence in the native community that there's a, a certain adjunct to native, let's, let's say the, 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 you know, the native zeitgeist, native culture, where there's almost a dichotomy between the, the, the kind of res Indian living in rural parts of Canada, US, wherever, and this kind of cosmopolitan native educated Indian where, you know, they can't really get together on certain ideas. And I think the way I present native people, which is more country, can ruffle some feathers because I don't think anybody, particularly these, you know, high concept Indians, want to look at native people like that because I think they look at it as being damaged. I don't know. I, I really don't know. Mm-hmm. But I've been getting some negative feedback because of that, I don't even really know, honestly, if I, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm, this is the reason in my brain. It's not the reason it is. It's just the reason that I'm thinking it is. Mm. Like, there's no, there's no, uh, it's, it's almost like you're subscribing to this idea of pan-Indianism in the sense that every native tribe is the same. So mm. if you're looking at it from the perspective of, say, a Navajo, some of the ideas are going to jive with what you have experienced in your own culture. And this is kind of like a, a, a kind of Western thing too, right? Like all Indians are the same. And that's, no, it isn't. I mean, if you go on native Twitter and see everybody fucking infighting over bullshit, you get an idea of how, how, how much that isn't the case. So I think I've been getting a little bit of that, but I got that with Rhymes too. I got that with Rhymes, which was like this, this uh, story about a young girl fighting residential schools, like destroying her residential schools. And it annoyed people because there was natives in there drinking and doing drugs. And there's this thing in ethnic cinema, in minority cinema, where you cannot, you cannot, you cannot put these characters in your films if they're going to be displaying any negative traits. 
Well, that's the thing. I imagine there's so much pressure because there are so few of these types of films being made that suddenly it's like, well, this will represent our entire people, this singular film, which is insane. It's an insane pressure to put on any one film. (laughs) Well, that's it. Because I'm getting this from the Native community and I'm getting this from the white community where they both think I'm speaking for all Natives who ever existed ever. Right. Despite the fact that I constantly reinforce the idea that I am micmac and that I do not speak for everybody who has, you know, Native ancestry. That's just, it is, it's fucking absurd. There's like, what, 500 different, 500 plus different tribes? I mean, like, they're all going to be the same? That's crazy. So... I actually had that experience where I had somebody, a high-profile Native artist, say, you don't deserve to represent us. And it was like, I don't fucking want to represent you because I have no idea about your, like, I have no intimate details about your cultural background because I didn't live there. I didn't grow up in the culture. I didn't, like, you know, all the reasons why you shouldn't appropriate the idea that you're representing all Native people. So, I mean, it's, 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 it is, it is, because every time a Native film gets made, and you see white filmmakers really embrace this, right? Like uh, that one with uh, Hawkeye, where he went to the reserve and he saved that Native ship. That's the fucking story of every white-directed Native story, right? It's like, white men are awesome, we're going to be the most awesome thing, and we're going to go to the reserve, or we're going to go to the Native community, and we're going to be the most awesome Indian there, and then we're going to save everybody, like white savior films. Um, that's kind of, I wanted to know a little bit, um, since I know I have struggled with trying to basically do anything since, uh, the world went to shit in the spring. Um, how have you tried to approach like creating or like coming up with ideas since, um, well, since the world started ending, like, are you getting anything done and, and like, how's that been working for you? Um, I have actually been getting, been getting stuff well done. I mean, I'm, as much as you can get anything done as a writer. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> like I've been working and, uh, the first thing that I did, I, I was working on this science fiction thing that had nothing to do with plagues or anything like that. And once the, the, the COVID virus hit, I rewrote everything. It was, it was to integrate that part of our history into the science fiction piece as if the COVID virus never went away. And that's one thing people never really talk about really because everybody wants to think that there's a vaccine around the corner and we're all gonna be you know, at the bar by New Year's, which is ridiculous because <laughs> in the history of humanity, we have never come up with a, a COVID vaccine. So there's a real good chance that this is just a part of society now. Right. So. I ran with that idea, and that's really basically how I've been keeping myself sane. And then, you know what the weird thing is? I think you guys can attest to this if you write, if you write too. Yeah. My, yeah, life, yeah. Hasn't, my life hasn't changed that much. <laughs> no, <laughs> and, like, the thing is, I am – I'm an introvert, but I have extrovert qualities. Like, I could be alone for a long time writing, doing stuff like that, but then I, I hit – a breaking point where suddenly I'm like, I got to talk to somebody or I'm just going to go completely batty. But my day to day looks pretty much the same. Yeah. Like I, uh, the only thing I stopped doing really is going to the gym. That's it. Yeah, exactly. And traveling. I mean like the, the, 
the virus hit right when Blood Quantum was supposed to be making it in the theaters. So, like, that ended up getting shelved where I was slated to be flying all over the place. That, you know, stopped. And I'm so grateful <laughs> because I just did not have the energy <laughs> after finishing. Because we finished the film, like, a few weeks, not even, like, a, like maybe a week before the debut. Oh, my God. So we went from that. I went from that to promoting it right away and like flying all over the place. So I was exhausted and yeah. I took the virus landing as an opportunity to like, just fucking lay on the couch and watch TV and, you know, not really do anything too stressful. Like I was still doing interviews and stuff like that, but I wasn't doing anything like uh, crazy. And now I feel like, uh, I'm just starting to get back into my writing rhythm again. I'm, I'm, you know, these guys like Stephen King that fucking crank out like two books a day. Like, I don't know how they do it. Like, I can understand back when he was a coke addict. <laughs> maybe, writing. Maybe, maybe he just developed those habits when he was on a coke binge and he just sort of like kept in that rhythm. Yeah. Do drugs, kids. You could be a best-selling author. <laughs> If you take no other message from this interview, please remember that. Um, So going back to the Academy and how horror is generally received um, by like prestige film, do you get the sense that maybe that's starting to change just because like you referenced Get Out before. There seems to be a lot of really exciting young filmmakers, uh, Ari Aster, who are working in the genre. And it feels like, and maybe I'm in a bubble here, so I could be wrong, but it feels like people are starting to take the the genre more seriously. I think people always have. I just think you're you're talking about like uh, you know a select few gatekeepers that feel like you know they don't want to taint the the prestige of like dramatic cinema with something as grotesque as like a decapitation or whatever. Right. How dare but, demonic you know, possession get in the way of uh, making more green books? Well, fuck it. You've seen... Uh, like Saving <laughs> That's a horror movie in its own way. If you see something like Saving Private Ryan, there's more gore in that than literally... True. Like any film I've seen. <laughs> as a matter of fact, I saw that in a theater. And the first 25 minutes left me, like, in shambles. I was, like, shaking. I think, I think that movie permanently fucked me up. Like, I can still remember images from the beach. Uh, yeah. D-Day. Yeah, like, that. it was horrifically violent. Oh, yeah. That's I don't it. Think my, <laughs> I don't think my it's dad like actually ever watched that movie because he was too triggered by all of the violence at the very beginning. Well, remember it, it triggered... It did trigger a bunch of veterans when they saw the premiere and they had to get up and leave the theater because it was so realistic. Yeah. 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 The fucked up thing about that movie for me was I, I like I went through that first scene and I was like blasted. I was so like holy shit. I was left shaking. Yeah. And then when the 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 latter scene, the latter fight scene started coming, you just hear the tanks and I started getting triggered and shook again. So the idea that horror is representative of that kind of fear and and horror I don't think is necessarily true because I think horror exists to take you out of that space. Right. Take you out of that realistic, you know, monsters are real and they're, and they're, 
you know, they can come with guns to get you to, you know, monsters aren't real. It's just some fucking, you know, metaphor running around in a spaceship. You know what I mean? So I think what horror does is allow you to live vicariously and experience that, but at the same time, not have to acknowledge that it's real. Where Saving Private Ryan doesn't do that. Schindler's List doesn't do that. But the weird thing about that is you're still... What, what, what kind of unsettles me about that is my inherent philosophy towards film is the second you slap a frame on something, you're manipulating the image and the content. Mm. So that's why, as a Native person, my films have a tendency to be hyperbolic and over-the-top but very cinematic, including the animation sequences. So at no one point can you sit there and say, this is an accurate representation of Native people. They go out and fight zombies with samurai swords. <laughs> Right. I yeah, I loved the samurai sword. By the way, that was it was it was Can nice I, to see some badass. This is a very fighting. nerdy, very nerdy <laughs> detail, but I specifically texted Meredith about it. The way the grandfather unsheaths the samurai sword, and it's just like a little movement of his back where he sort of whips down his back to pull it out, is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it's so <laughs> badass. You know, Stone Horse is a. Uh... He's like an AIM guy. He's a Vietnam vet. And you know what he does for a living? What? He trains. Well, he, he used to be a Thai fighter. And he trains uh, MMA fighters. So oh, he yeah. is the character. And if you look at the... Uh, there was a season of The Ultimate Fighter where John Jones was a trainer. Wait, and yes. You could, see, you, could see, you could see Stone Horse in the background every oh, once in a while. Oh my God, I'm losing my mind. Allison uh, is a huge fan of MMA, so of course I, this is... Oh, really? Are you? I do awesome. jiu-jitsu, I used to do Muay Thai, yeah. I, and I know exactly the season you're talking about, and I'm freaking out. I'm going to go back and look for him. <laughs> yeah, you can see him. Like, he does interviews and stuff. Oh, my God. He's like, on top of being all of that, he is one of the most charismatic people you could ever meet because he's just one story after another, and he's, he's, he's always joking. And he has really no experience on screen outside of, you know, hey, we need a Indian number six in the background. He has right. one of those, and he has the time spent on camera in The Ultimate Fighter. So he didn't really have any experience, but he threw himself into the role. That's and nobody, so wild. Nobody yeah, told he... him to do that move. He just started doing it. Man, oh, my God. The first it's day so I cool. met Stone Horse, <laughs> he, was, he was already, like, the... When we came in to do the camera test, Stone Horse was there, and he was like, <laughs> he was already playing around with the samurai swords and all the guns, all the fake guns we had. So for him, he he really like he really bought in. He had because I was worried, right? Because here's this dude, fucking perfect, and I'm like, is he gonna freak out in camera? Is he gonna like? Is he gonna handle the 16-hour days? And he did. No complaints. If you look at the scene in. The end where he's doing the stand up with the zombies, it was so fucking cold that his ears are wiggling, his earlobes are wiggling. Oh, like wow. just from the, the the cold. And you know, if you've ever been around actors, actors, oh I need a, you know, I yeah. need my things and you know, they need to be babied a little. And he wasn't like that at all. He was no. just like fuck it, I could stand here all day. <laughs> so, of course he's a fighter, yeah. Like now that you Tell me about his background. I'm like, of course, of course. Yeah. Like, but oh my God, he's like so charismatic too, that I never thought like 
this is a fighter and an actor secondary. I was like, oh, wow, this actor really nailed this fight choreography. But yeah, that makes perfect sense. We actually had to talk him out of doing some of that because he wanted to do it all. And <laughs> we're all worried that, you know, he's probably going to hit stunt people because he oh, doesn't yeah. this, you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's a couple of scenes where, weirdly enough, our head stunt guy was uh, bald and kind of the same build as as Stone Horse. So he substituted here and there. But mostly it was uh, Stone Horse, just, you know, the funniest part of Stone Horse, actually. Was he insisted on dragging like three hundred and twenty pound, seven foot nine Brandon Oaks for every one of those takes that you see him dragging the uh, the guy <laughs> like the boat? So he, he, we did that like four times. Oh <laughs> he kept not doing it, and it's like you want help, you know? We can figure <laughs> something out, and no, no, I'll do it. Yeah, of course. Brandon was kind of you know making himself heavy. <laughs> <laughs> So because he was dead weight, right? He just got stabbed. And he was a joy to work with, honestly. And I cannot wait to work with him again. I actually have I've written something, not specifically for him, but perfect for him. Like it was before we had done Blood Quantum. And it's like uh, I wrote a part for an old boxing coach running a running an orphanage for like wayward boys wayward native kids teaching them how to fight. And it's like, it's stoners. It's stoners. The oh, weird wow. thing about it, like, I mentioned, like, the uh, the pause that we took. So, it was, it was during that time, he kind of started doing acting lessons. And before, his job was, you know, show up, don't fuck your lines up, be yourself. But towards the end, he had to say goodbye to his grandson, and, you know, he had to emote a little, and he did it. And it was like, yeah. you know, that little moment in the, the, the chink of the kind of native grandpa badass, that little moment of vulnerability is really the summation of the man's character. And, yeah, he was, uh, he was the highlight of the film. That's amazing. So we would, you know, be completely remiss having an actual filmmaker uh, to talk to. Um, what are your, like, tell us a little bit about your favorite movies. Does, don't have to be horror or genre. Like, what kind of, what's the stuff that really inspired you and made you want to make movies and, you know, keeps you excited to do more? The first film that I remember seeing that really made me want to be a filmmaker was Bram Stoker's Dracula. Francis Ford Coppola's movie, Dracula. Nice. <laughs> and I didn't realize it at the time, but I was looking at old school film techniques. There was no CGI in that film, but for one scene, the blue fire you see where they go into the uh, castle, that's the only CGI you see. So that was the film that, you know, oh my God, I think I can, I think I want to do this for a living. But before that, I kind of grew up on a steady diet of music videos and I loved music. So I would record music videos on my little Betamax and kind of watch those obsessively. And I think that's kind of where I developed my aesthetic, that and comic books. Because I've been uh, reading comic books since I could remember. And that's where a lot of the ideas that I get come from. And filmmakers, I mean, it really is Francis Ford Coppola, Kubrick, like all the big names, uh, Kurosawa, uh, Eraserhead, probably one of my... If you want to talk about my favorite horror film, Eraserhead. Eraserhead is my favorite horror film. Blade Runner is my, probably my favorite science fiction film. 
trying to think of my favorite dramatic film. Does Gummo count? <laughs> <laughs> it totally counts. I mean, you definitely. I think oh, that would ahead, be my Zach. favorite. Uh, that would be my favorite drama, of comedy. Jeez, where to start? I don't even. Can we even... can we get some comic book recommendations? Uh, I'm reading right now. I'm reading something called Unnatural, which is made by an Italian woman whose name I can't remember right now. And it's about uh, anamorphic or what, what do they call it when the animals are like people? Anthropomorphized. And okay, that's it. And <laughs> There's the, the story is basically the society is animals can't mix mm. and to do so would be considered unnatural. So there's a, a kind of uh, ministry of, of love that matches people. <laughs> so that's what I'm, I'm reading now. Called, it's called Unnatural. Uh, I'm always reading Batman. I hate to say it. I'm always reading Conan. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. I don't know. I read so much stuff that I, I can't really narrow it down. But another book that really that I really loved was a, a limited series uh, called Spread. It was kind of like what would happen if the thing from the thing got out and infected the world. It's kind of that post-apocalyptic story. I really loved that. Um, Saga. Saga is the best comic ever made, honestly. Yeah. I think that's uh, that's that's, you know, uh, you know, I say that. But there's a book right now called Monstrous, written by, written by, um, Jesus Christ, I could see her name in my head. I'm terrible with names if you haven't figured that out by now. But <laughs> that, written by two women, or uh, written by a woman, and uh, drawn by a woman, that is epic. I mean, it's it's the best book on the market right now, in my opinion. And basically that- anything coming out of it. Marjorie Sorry. Liu? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly yeah, that. Yeah. And um, basically anything coming out of Image where they're more creative driven and the artists own their own books. I mean, I find what they're doing, the stuff coming out of Image is easily the best stuff on the market right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, you're awesome. And uh, yeah, thank you for making Blood Quantum. It's it's great. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me and promoting the film. Oh my gosh, literally whenever. But yeah, um, I hope you have a good uh, quarantine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope you, I hope you keep thriving. Keep thriving. Keep making dope shit. Yeah, you seem in your element. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Thanks again to Jeff. That's at Trip Gore on Twitter. Do check out Blood Quantum. Please also follow Meredith at Meredith L. Clark. She's the whole reason I even watched this dang movie. Uh, Follow her. Support everything she's doing. Guys, thanks so much for listening to this unexpected Light Trees and News bonus episode. Let me know what you thought of it. Hashtag light trees and pod and i'll see you this weekend for our regular episode bye i love you oh yeah stay inside and get into some good trouble